And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Each week, we'll take you behind the curtain into the world of football business and other sports across the globe. Alongside me, as ever, from The Athletic is football news reporter Matt Slater. First up today, we'll examine the termination of French football's £3 billion TV deal that has left Ligue 1 clubs facing an uncertain future. And we'll also discuss the future of broadcast rights across the globe. Then you'll hear Matt in conversation with a couple of other people. Uh, The Charlton owner, Thomas Sangard, will join us. He's been over visiting his club. And also, on the 25th anniversary, yes, 25 years since the Bosman ruling, Matt will also talk to the General Secretary of FIFPRO, Jonas Bayer-Hoffman. Right now, if you subscribe to The Athletic, you can give another subscription as a gift for free. It's the perfect present for any football fan this Christmas. Enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. It's the perfect present for yourself and someone else. So just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Okay, well, first on the pod, Matt, let's deal with the news that emerged last week that French football's three billion pounds TV deal is to be terminated. Yeah, this is a huge mess and will be watched, I think, with interest but with horror by other leagues and clubs around Europe. Um, The background is French TV, French league, to huge fanfare, I think it was 2018, signed this massive deal that took their overall uh, TV rights package over a billion euros for the first time, with by far the biggest chunk, about 800 million euros of that a year, coming from MediaPro, who are, are a big Chinese-Spanish pay TV broadcaster. They basically smashed Canal Plus, the existing broadcaster, out of, out of the water with this huge offer for the, the domestic rights. You know, everyone was raising their glasses and thinking, this is great. You know, the French League, PSG, here we come. We're, you know, properly going to compete now. We get to this season. Of course, last season was was very, very hard, the end of it for everybody in Europe. But the French Leagues curtailed their season and didn't resume. Uh, and one of the reasons was that they were very keen to get started with this new TV deal. They were terrified of of delaying the start of the new season and they wanted to crack on with the new TV deal. Now, unfortunately, MediaPro's business model was based on, well, the most optimistic estimates for new subscribers I think I've ever seen. Um, the most recent numbers, I think they've got about 600,000 customers. They needed over 3 million to make their gamble work. They missed a big payment. I think it was the second payment that was due. They've missed another one in December. It's been through the French courts. They've wrapped it up. MediaPro are going to pay a small amount to cancel this deal. But French football is left now. It reminds me of ITV Digital with 
clubs presumably budgeting for this bonanza. Now it goes back and Canal Plus have just sat there in the wings and thinking, great, well, we're going to get this for half price. Well, French clubs, their budgets are all over the place. So that's that's where we're at. I mean, Pierre's the real expert here. So I'm gonna. So let's 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 speak to him. Let's bring him in then. Pierre Mass, a sports rights expert and author of the book "The Football TV Rights Business: Explosive Bubble Investigation." Uh, after a career with the Canal Plus Group, Pierre now a consultant in the sports uh, TV rights sector. Media Pro Pierre didn't even manage to keep up their payments for four months. Yeah, that's the cruel reality. Let me precise something maybe in, 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 in what you just said. MediaPro is not a, a, a pay TV operator at all. MediaPro is an agency and a production company. That's it. Uh, their experience in pay TV is and still is nihil. The French league and the French clubs have been so naive in this process. You just have to compare with what the Italian league did with MediaPro. Uh, MediaPro actually uh, in 2018 everybody thought they were fueled by Chinese money with the entrance of their main shareholder Orient Ontai Capital. But actually, uh, they, they, they didn't pay anything. But in 2018, they were like just cowboys and, 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 and bidding everywhere they, they, they could. They started in, in Italy, then in France. And in Italy, uh, the league just asked for a, you know, a, a, a non-refundable caution of 64 million euros. And MediaPro, after having, you know, being swept away from the Italian league, MediaPro is now trying to recoup this 64 million, but uh, it, it's going to be impossible. But as you said, they, they missed the second payment of 24. Well, when you say naive, the French clubs, and hindsight is a wonderful thing for, for us all. But even when this deal was being discussed, even when this deal was signed, did anybody raise the warning signs before it was agreed? Not before it was agreed, but first of all, we have to say that the process of the tender is very formal. They didn't ask for an upfront payment. The payment terms with these payments every two months is, is just ridiculous. Uh, every league in the world asks for half of the, of the, of the total amount uh, before the start of uh, the competition and the second half uh, in January. And of course, financial guarantee uh, was absolutely ridiculous. They didn't have a bank guarantee. They said we are happy with a guarantee offered by the shareholder, but the shareholder is not Orient Ontai Capital, is not uh, WPP, because you have to know that WPP here still has a 22% share of MediaPro, but it's just a holding above MediaPro. They got a, a, a guarantee from a company called Joy Media, but it's just the same. So it means that just as ITV Digital, which you, you, you very correctly uh, mentioned, they don't have a guarantee. They, they can't knock at the shareholders' door to get the payment. Mm. How would you explain to a British audience, what's the, what is the French football TV market like? I mean, are, are French football fans avid viewers of football? Do they, is there a history of paying as we do in this country, as we've got used to? I don't know, 70, 80 euros a month to watch football? Is, is, is that market even there? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, actually, you know, in France, love for, for, for football is not the same as 
in the four other countries of the big five. That's for sure. That's a start. But when Canal Plus arrived in, you know, in the market in 1984, they changed it. They changed the things a bit. And the way, you know, the way they produce they produce the games, the fact that Canal Plus was a very sympathetic brand, actually made 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 the competition grow. Okay. Then after that, you had a very very unique situation in Europe in terms of competition between operators. Uh, Canal Plus has been, you know, challenged first by. TPS, they managed to take them in MOA, then by Orange, but actually they had a second wave of competitors after 2012, starting with BEIN, then with Altis RMC Sports in 2015, ending with Media, Media Pro in 2018, which means that in 2018 you had four competitors in the in in the marketplace which is completely unique in europe and uh, and of course it has it has led the the, the rights prices uh, up where are they at now then pierre I, I mean matt alluded to french clubs and their budgets based on this new tv deal that has gone and and these other um broadcasters who have had rights in the past and in particular canal plus circling round a deal that they will get um, at a much lower price, presumably, because French clubs will be desperate. Definitely. Again, we can have a look at what happened to ITV, ITV Digital. Remember, uh, first of all, uh, after the ITV Digital collapse, you had, in the 18 months following uh, the collapse, you had something like 14 clubs going back bankrupt. That's huge. Secondly, a few months later, a few months after uh, ITV collapse, you had Sky buying the rights again for less than a quarter of the ITV digital price. So when we translate this into French, if I, if I dare to say, uh, <laughs> you, you, you certainly uh, will have Canal Plus correcting the market. That is for sure. The market has been so hot due to this intense competition that they are going to push the rights back uh, to to uh, to the to the low. Uh, I don't think they will be as aggressive as Sky has been um, in this uh, in this uh, ITV digital story, but they certainly won't miss this opportunity. Secondly, for the clubs, the clubs it all it all depends on the cash. Here, the league, you know, has been forced to accept, a, you know, a ridiculous deal with MediaPro. The 100 million you, you, talk, you mentioned uh, before. This is completely ridiculous. Uh, MediaPro will pay 100 million, hopefully, and, um, and, 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 uh, and the league will can't uh, go after them to recoup the money or even to ask for, for damages. It's, 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 it's a ridiculous deal. Why did they accept it? Because the clubs need the cash. The, the, the deal will be valid only if MediaPro makes a prepayment of 64 million. Hope they can do it and they will give this money immediately to the clubs because the clubs are waiting for their, their half, um, uh, for their mid-December uh, payment. 
And if they don't have it, they can't pay um, the salaries and they can be in a very uh, difficult position. Pierre, just, in, just as we're, we're approaching January, approaching the transfer window, uh, overnight we heard some news coming out of Lille, a Champions League team only last season. I think they were runners-up in 2019. A, a team that has developed and sold so much talent, lots of it to the Premier League, is, is I think, 140 million euros in the red and uh there the the, the elliot um one of the funds one of the private equity funds that have lent them money have basically ousted the president very concerned about getting their money back i think it's all pointing towards a huge fire sale of players in january isn't it a lot of french clubs are going to be in real trouble and they've got an opportunity i guess to bring some money in, but they are going to be selling talent at knockdown prices. Definitely, and it's not the only thing that they that they are going to uh, to sell at low prices. They can also sell themselves at, at low prices because you have a, a big interest from uh, private equities on the league first, as they did in uh, in Italy, but also uh, because the league has decided to go for a, a a commercial company, and definitely they will they will follow the Italian scenario on that. But also private equities will have an eye on, on French clubs which are desperate and they could do certainly a very uh, they, they could they could buy these clubs for a very cheap price in your book you you talk about the uninterrupted escalation of football's TV rights seemingly being irreversible does what has happened in in Liga and maybe what's happened as you say in Italy in the past mean that actually the TV rights won't escalate because maybe the big players, the real broadcasters, Canal Plus, Sky, can go, well, look, if you chase the money from people promising you the earth, they very rarely deliver. And therefore, we're the trusted ones and maybe they can negotiate their own prices down. Between March 2019 and, 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 and October, we had already uh, definitely reached uh, a ceiling. Mm. Uh, Premier League minus 10%, uh, Bundesliga minus uh, 2% after a 84% uh, increase in the last cycle. So the signs were there that, that, we, that, that we had reached a ceiling. Now, with this media pro uh, thing, uh, we are going to go from the correction to the explosion, I guess. No, not I guess, I'm sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about the um, the Chinese money behind media pro as well. So the global markets that certainly the Premier League have been able to uh, exploit in a, in, a, in a good way, I don't mean that in a, in a criminal way, I mean exploit financially over, over many, many years. Is that dropping off as well? Yes, I think so, because the other killing factor is, is piracy. Yeah. Uh, piracy has, has never been so big. And why is that? It, it, it's, just, it's just for technological reasons, actually. Why is piracy today so big and getting every day bigger? Because today, you know, the bandwidth the, the, the bandwidth, which is very big in, in, in each of the European countries, allows, allows uh, uh, an easy uh, upload and, and, and downloads of, uh, of uh, live videos. So now it's very easy. And piracy will make life very difficult for Sky, Canal Plus and other uh, established uh, pay TVs. So where are we heading then, Pierre? What's your, what's your gut telling you? Is it, 
Is it sort of a Netflix type model or, uh, you know, a Super League? Um, are we going to, are we going to start watching something else? What, what, what was happening? Yeah, this is, your, your, your three, the three parts of your question are, are, are very interesting. Well done, Matt. We've waited a long time for that, haven't we, in. on this yeah, podcast? Exactly. Yeah, well, I'll get there in the end. <laughs> to go to a Netflix or, or, or even a Spotify, you know, will take a lot, a lot of time. You will have to educate people that are uh, managing leagues and clubs that they don't have to count on the on the TV money uh, from now, and that's gonna it's gonna take time. At the end of the day, maybe one day we will we will have a Spotify of football of sports. Maybe it would mean at that time that piracy has been getting so big that the only solution would be a, a Spotify. A Spotify, of course, you know the revenues of a Spotify will be uh, ridiculous for 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 the clubs. As, as they are for the artists or in music. Secondly, you're talking about a Super League. Yes, uh, the gap uh, and, and the, the gap between big clubs and small clubs and the gap between premium properties and, and, and second tier properties is going to grow. That is for sure. I think that a, a European Super League can still, 10 years from now, attract the television's interest and get Big, big, big TV money. That is for sure. But it's going to be the only property that can that can do this. So the the, the, the gap between the super rich and, and and the other ones will be will be definitely bigger. Are people still going to love football on TV on whatever uh, device? What we are living today, uh, having uh, three three games a day at least, uh, it's 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 not good. You know, uh, the value comes from 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 rarity. You know that. So uh, I think that product football has will have one day to to ask themselves some some very difficult questions about format about uh, about calendar etc we do find quite a lot on this podcast pierre that we then end up talking about uh, an american model which is which is what we're going to do uh, right now because partly because you mentioned the product really and i often feel when when dealing with with the nfl side of things that whilst they are obviously wanting a lot of money from their TV deals, that the product is the most important thing and the reach of the product is the most important thing. So they have no problem with a Thursday night game being shown on their own NFL network, a TV channel, and also on Amazon Prime. So they're not as worried about the exclusivity, but they want the reach because they understand that people, different generations consume their product in different ways and and indeed you know matt was telling me before we came on air that that nickelodeon the kids tv channel are actually gonna show the afc wildcard game on the on january the 10th and that will be coverage that's tailored more towards i'm guessing eight nine ten year olds so is that is that where european football executives need to think about the bigger picture really and just you know money is important but there's a lot more to it than that it's very difficult to compare uh nfl and 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 more generally the united states as a market with europe in the united states due to the due to to how big the country is they still can have both exposure and money 
which is only possible uh, because of the, the, the market is so huge. So they can sell their rights to uh, free televisions, which are able to pay uh, huge uh, money for this. This is totally impossible in small, smaller markets in Europe, even in the big five countries. It's fascinating, Pierre. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, hopefully you'll come on again in the future. Really appreciate it. Yes, thanks, Pierre. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, the host of a special episode of Giant, produced by The Athletic. It's the story of Chester City's American dream. A dream that turned into a nightmare. This is Terry Smith. He's coached teams to honours in England, Europe and the United States. One of football's most celebrated coaches. American football, that is. Now he wants to conquer another sport. I think I've probably got, uh, you know, more years of coaching experience than just about anyone. Not you in know. soccer. Not in, no, not in soccer. Search for Giant on Spotify to listen to the full episode. So next up, you'll hear Matt in conversation with Thomas Sangard. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. I think one of the most interesting takeovers of the last year or so, we've been meaning to talk to the guys behind that for a while. And I, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that we've got Thomas Sangard with us now, who has just well, relatively recently bought Charlton Athletic, which a famous old club that have been through it a bit of late. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in what is the most ridiculously complicated legal shenanigans imaginable with a with a cast of thousands but Thomas can we just update Charlton fans and perhaps put them at rest that the legal stuff that is still rumbling on in the background is not going to change anything as far as you're concerned you own Charlton and it's we move forward from here yes as entertaining as the whole negotiating and getting through the uh, the takeover was that's all history there's really no no legal issues left those issues are really related to something else we're taking care of that the only thing that might really be left of all that is that we have one of the leftovers from before the takeovers uh, that that's kind of symbolizes bad owners of football clubs uh, the the range rover uh, that's this raffle that <laughs> on boxing day a fan gets to win so that, that might be, a, be the only leftover from, from all that entertainment. We should probably explain a little bit about that to, to people that don't follow. Oh, Charles yeah. I mean, I mean feel, feel, feel free to jump in and explain how you can do this. I mean, my understanding is that the last regime managed to sort of treat themselves to seven very nice white Range Rovers on, on the club's account, which you have now reclaimed, rightly so. And you're 
raffling them, which I think is a fantastic gesture. So go on, is that, have, I, have I basically got that right? That's right. We auctioned off so we could limit the, the losses of, 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 of the other rain throwers. We kept one that I felt was oh, okay. very in a very symbolic uh, manner was, was very important to the fans that all that misunderstood how you can strip assets out of football clubs. That whole phenomenon that uh, symbolically we would, we would raffle that out to, to a fan. How do you join the raffle? Is it, do you buy a ticket? Yeah, you buy uh, access to uh, the, the Charlton live TV or we, we, we call it a Valley Pass. The more games that you, uh, you buy access to, the more tickets you have uh, in the raffle on Boxing Day. So there's still a chance to get in. Thomas, talk me through your your first impressions of owning a English football team in League One. You, you, you're doing all right. You're just off the playoff pace. We have one or two games in hand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you just smashed um, AFC Wimbledon. Uh, you know, a, a well-run club. So, you know, how's it going uh, on the football side? Obviously, it couldn't have gone any better because of how much the squad, the first team squad, has been decimated in the spring and during the summer just to pay all these lavish bills. It was really quite a scramble to, uh, within a few weeks, put add another 12 players, really strong players that are competing very well in, in, in League One. And then watch Lee Boyer make, make the whole team gel and actually start getting some results. Uh, it was amazing how fast uh, we, we got those, uh, those players uh, put in and, 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 and playing that well. So I'm very excited about that. Obviously, it tells you how strong the, the management is on the football side. I've also noticed we have, we have an infrastructure in the back office that has been here for many years, very loyal and dedicated workforce, is making, making uh, it, everything just uh, work like a clockwork. So I've had really very little, if, if, if anything, to worry about in terms of just the infrastructure of the club. So that has been a, a very nice surprise. Obviously, we, we made a, a couple of improvements. I added a commercial director to look at things more like you look at sponsorships, et cetera, on a Premier League level and building that whole thing. That's going to happen over the next several years. And I've also added a technical director on the, um, on the football side so that we start making the infrastructure on, 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 the, uh, on the football side ready for uh, an existence uh, in the Premier League. That more happens behind the scenes. We'll just make sure that we, we don't get to be one of those clubs. Yeah, we get promoted to the Premier League, but boom, elevator club, we're back down again. So I'm putting those pieces in place. Other than that, the rest really works really well. I guess the issues that you're going to presumably want to resolve is, is, is the ground, the ownership there, the training ground. What, what, what can you say about that? Well, it was obviously part of the negotiating and as the club was just days away from administration, and the last piece I really needed in all that was uh, the Belgium ownership of the valley and the training ground. What uh, was more palatable um, to the, uh, on the Belgium side was a, a rental agreement. There was already one in, okay. in place with the previous owners, but with all kinds of clawbacks and 44 million here and this and that. And in order to, to untangle out uh, all of that, what I what I uh, saw was possible was just um, paying three times as high of a rent, get rid of all the other, the other crap, and then we could get a deal mm -hmm. before, in, instead of dragging it out and, and negotiating whether it should be 70 million or 50 million for, uh, for those properties. Um, it was a lot easier. So I have the next 15 years to figure out exactly what we do okay. and, and get, get that negotiated into place.
So you've gone for a long-term rental agreement yeah. just to provide some security. Exactly. And did, did the rent drop when you got relegated? Was there a relegation clause in there that dropped the rents? No. No, no. The, the, the no. relegation happened before I, um, okay. I, was, I was really gearing up um, in uh, yeah. negotiating game. You know, you've taken over this club, um, a club that's been in the Premier League, that certainly is a you know very sort of you know solid championship club. You're in League One, very keen to get out of League One. It, you know, do you, do you do you curse your timing a little bit? You know, we are going through a very strange period uh, everywhere. You're playing behind closed doors. London's just gone back into Tier Three. Are you kicking yourself a little bit about your timing? Uh, no, uh, not at all. Uh, actually, um, I think the whole COVID situation and what that does in in terms of uh, ability to have fans and stadium, the revenue, uh, and all that. That's really independent of the the whole situation of now playing in 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 League One. If I address that first, uh, I think it's actually a blessing that I get in and we get a chance to to create some stability and and build a a platform for the club uh, while we're playing in League One and obviously hopefully get promoted to the Championship. Rather than having come into it, there's no team. It's all been decimated uh, from, mm-hmm. from from last season. Put new players in. And if we were just coming into a, uh, a hurricane of champ- strong championship clubs coming at us strong immediately, that could have been rough. So I'm actually glad to have a whole season to put things together and then be ready for, for life in the championship and, and, and build it from there. Obviously, when it comes to COVID, and I, when I looked at buying the club, what I did was to look at the overall financial picture. And a big component of that was the, uh, the anticipated loss operating loss uh, during this season because of the, the, the lack of, of fans in the stadium. And that's basically, as I look at it, just, just part of the price. We know that just in a, in a few months, especially helped by, by the vaccine now coming out, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be in good shape. So that was just the cost of getting into English football. Well, we should probably explain a little bit about, you know, who you are and, and how you made your money. I mean, you know, you, it, it does sound that you've done this. It's a vote of confidence in English football. It's also a vote of confidence in English football's ability to bounce back from COVID. And, and I'm encouraged that you're encouraged because you understand medical technology better than most. You, you, that, that's your business, isn't it? That's my business. So obviously have not made my money by buying football clubs and stripping them for assets yeah. or, or border schools and stripping them for, for assets. So <laughs> run a business making medical devices and helping many hundreds of thousands um, of, of, of patients uh, with, with pain relief and, and invent devices that I use for, for operating rooms in, in, in hospitals, et, et cetera. And, and with everything being very transparent uh, as, as well, in that we are listed on, on, a, on a stock exchange in the United States and, and therefore the whole world knows about every little detail that's going on at the business. And yet you have chosen to enter the world of football. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping that I can not only do great things in terms of football success, but also I'm already working with the EFL, our chairman Rick Parry and, and a few other people at the EFL to use my experiences to hopefully keep improving on creating a more transparent, more financially sound, but also avoid situations like the situation Charlton has been through the uh, the last year. A wholehearted supporter of, of salary caps and, and a fairer distribution of TV money? It's all relative. I know that also 
at the EFL, there's an opinion that clubs sometimes have a tendency to, to overspend, especially in the championship, but also League One, League Two. Therefore, maybe sometimes just because of emotional uh, decision-making, that, uh, that, that, that people spend more money than, uh, than is, is, is really healthy for the clubs. Um, so that's, that's one of the fundamental reasons that the, the, the salary caps has been introduced. Uh, what is the right level? Maybe, maybe that needs to be looked at, but it's obviously in an attempt to make sure that there's a, a level of fairness. So it's just not because, uh, relative to the size of the pocketbooks of, of, of the owners. But in, in terms of Charlton specifically, I honestly think we have an advantage uh, compared to other clubs in that that game, in that the Charlton brand itself is a very, very strong brand and can attract players that will get paid the same, whether it's in Sunderland or, or Ipswich or any of the other club. So I, th- I believe we have a very strong advantage, obviously being a London club, helps with the, the draw, but the, the history the brand of Charlton is, is actually helpful. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting you mentioned the Charlton brand because it, it does strike me as, as one of the stronger ones, certainly in the EFL. You know, and, and, and that presumably is, is part of what attracted you to the to the club. Uh, absolutely, we yeah. You know, we mentioned we've mentioned that you know your you, you know your, your business background and, and people will be aware that that that's based in the states. But you're Danish, right? And there's a, there's a, there's a Danish connection that goes back at Charlton. Oh yeah, there's been a lot of Danish players at the club. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. I often ask overseas owners that come into the game, you know, what are you bringing to the table? What, what's, what's your kind of idea? What are you going to add? Where's the, the value that you're going to add? Is it, is it going to be your sort of, you know, your connections in the US? Is it going to be your, you know, your, your links with Scandinavia? Is it a bit of both? No, it's not geographical. It's my personality that I bring to the table. A personality of being very ambitious, have a history of being able to, take things that are in a difficult position, turn them around and obviously uh, make them successful. So I'm very ambitious, uh, but I'm also very realistic about it. And, and in my experiences, life is really simple. Business, football is really simple. Um, and a lot of people have a tendency to overcomplicate it. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I bring to the table. We don't need to overcomplicate things and at the same time, be, um, let's make sure we, uh, we're ambitious about what, what we do. And in terms of the long-term success uh, of the club, uh, a solid existence in, in the Premier League is, is what I'm, I'm hoping for. I'm also a numbers guy. So what I'm looking at is the probabilities. So I put a foundation in place so the probability for success is, is very high. You could still lose some, some games that maybe you shouldn't, shouldn't have. But overall, you end up accumulating the points that you need to get promoted. And that's basically how I look at things. Simple, yeah. simple pleasures. And I know you've, I know you've been, um, I know you've been sampling some of South London's finest, finest ales in their, in their best, in their best public houses. We, you bet, yeah. when, when are you coming back, and, and where, are you, where are you drinking next? Well, um, two nights ago it was at the Rose of Denmark, uh, pretty close to, to the valley, uh, a great place. It, sadly, the, the manager up there is, is a, uh, I don't know how that, that happened, but he's a Crystal Palace fan. And oh. he's not even shy about it. Huh? But other than that, it's yeah. a great place. Um, so we'll see where we end up next. We've also been to, to Hope or Anchor and Hope. Um, oh, I know that one. So, um, yeah, nice pubs. Well, look, safe travels. Good talking to you. And all the best for Christmas and the rest of the season. Thank you. And same to you, Matt. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And before we go, let's just mark the 25th anniversary of Bosman, the ruling that completely changed football. The General Secretary of FIFPRO, Jonas Bayer-Hoffman, has been talking to Matt. As we're the Business of Sport podcast, it'd be strange not to mark, perhaps the biggest business of sport story of all time, the Bosman ruling. It's its 25th anniversary this week. Who better to speak to than the General Secretary of FIFPRO, the Global Players Union, Jonas Bayer-Hoffman, about this momentous landmark. But Jonas, before we get into the good stuff of, of the law. Perhaps just say a little bit about FIFPRO. As you said, FIFPRO is basically the, the global umbrella organization of players associations around the world. Um, so in England, that would be the PFA. Um, and we have 68 affiliated national um, players associations, player unions um, around the world um, on four continents. Um, we represent players, um, some of which um, would play on the Premier League level, um, first league in France, etc. Um, Champions League caliber player, everything down to um, you know players who literally make two hundred, three hundred dollars a month. We have an enormous task of representing all over the world approximately sixty thousand professional players, male and female, and um, yeah, are battling our way through the <laughs> through the reality that football is today. Sounds like it. Well, look, it's a very broad church, huge range of issues. Let's go straight in then on on the big one. And, and uh, you know, I know it's something that FIFPRO were enormously involved in, the Jean-Marc Bosman case, which is fascinating. There's a there's a documentary on BT Sports uh, right now. I can recommend it. There's um, some hot young talent in there, um, uh, including myself. Um, uh, and it was a huge case, complicated case, like many of these sort of big legal sagas. It didn't start out the way it ended, if you know what I mean. It was about a a you know, let's say a, a fairly you know, a good young player, didn't quite kick on. Uh, Jean-Marc Bosman, you know, started at Standard Liège, didn't, didn't quite work out. He'd been a, a Belgian youth international, but was a perfectly solid player. And then his career ran into the buffers because 
The rules back then were still unbelievably restrictive. It, it seems weird to think about it now that a player out of contract could still be held and restrained in that way. So, so Jonas, if you just pick up the story there, what 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 was the the Bosman case about? What did it achieve? As you said, the key question was whether a player who came to the end of his employment contract um, would have the freedom to essentially choose whoever he wants to work for, play for next. And at the time when Bosman happened, already on um, in almost all national um, markets, that freedom of movement, that freedom to choose your club was established. So in England, that was, you know, when you go back to George Eastham back in 1963. But what had happened at the time of Bosman is that we, of course, we had massively progressed on European integration. We had free movement principles in the in the EU. And he, as a football player, said, these rules apply to me. I'm a worker. I'm not some weird um, <laughs> legal construct of a football player that doesn't apply to the law. I'm a worker and these rules apply to me. And that means you as my club cannot basically limit my ability to leave and play somewhere else and give my registration to the new club that I choose. Um, because at the time, usually that would require the club to receive money from the future club. And he won that case. And um, when you look at the transfer market today, we, of course, we have still many transfers for money. We have loans, etc., etc. But more than 70% of players today move at the end of their contract. All of these players essentially in this old system, if they were to move abroad, would have a financial price tag um, around their collar. And that's what he effectively removed. And he stood up to a massive system because as you can imagine, club leagues, federations, all at the time, they all yelled from the, from the rooftop, this will end football, this will kill football. And of course, this happened at the same time when we had a massive economic spiral kicking in in football, right? Many competitions were created at the time, Premier League, Champions League, etc. came in and around the time. We had the broadcasting revolution, which spilled a lot of money into football. And him opening up this market actually helped with this enormous elevation of the game, which led us to where we are today. But as you said from the outset, it is probably the most impactful sporting justice decision um, in football ever. When I sort of think about it now, it, it, the implications are huge. And it, and it, it just started for something relatively small. I mean, Jean-Marc Bosman wasn't a fam famous player, not beyond Belgium anyway. Um, he was trying to go from, I think, RFC Liège, which was sort of like the second team in Liège at the time, to Dunkirk, just across the border in France. He was unable to do so because he was effectively priced out of the market. And it was almost like a sort of employment law, an HR issue. He sort of took on his club, he took on the Belgian FA. But pretty soon you realise that what he was really going at here was the entire system, which meant UEFA, it meant FIFA. And we got into things like the three plus two rule, which will again be, what, what on earth is the three plus two rule? You know, when you look at kind of modern football now, well, that was a restriction on the number of foreign players you could have. Again, another limitation on someone's ability, a footballer's ability to go work where they liked. And and that is what I find quite remarkable that, that this one player just asked a question. Why can't I be treated like, I don't know, a butcher, a banker, uh, whoever it might be? What, what's so special about footballers? So from there, we then got, you know, Steve McManaman, we got Paul Lambert, we got these mega transfers. But going back to your original point about the broad church that FIFPro represent, it's not always about the multimillionaire transfer, is it? It's about quite small transfers, 
not even transfers. Yeah, the the vast vast majority is far away from anything that you would watch on what do you mm. call it deadline day, um, when Sky Sports puts the big show on. Um, this is a very small fraction of the market um, because you have to also remember. I mean, in order for you to be really in the contention of a transfer you first of all need to be a player that has a multi-year contract, right? Because the moment you have a one or a two-year contract, most likely you'll just run it out and then you move under the famous Bosman. Um, now, the vast majority of players in their careers will never sign a contract that's longer than two years. They'll go year on year signing here, signing there, trying to extend their career for another year. And the vast majority, again, will make only a few thousand, sometimes even only a few hundred dollars, euros, whatever currency you want to apply a month. And what this system effectively does, as you rightly say, when we when people talk about the transfer system, you think about this trading market of players that impact sporting performance and all of that, which of course it is. But the bottom line is it's a system of employment rules. It's a system establishing the parameters under which a club or a player can terminate an employment contract and work somewhere else. And however you price that, however many restrictions you put in place for that, the more you weaken the position of the player in this market. And at that time, that restriction was absolute because without the club's agreement, you were basically, um, well, you had no choice. But still today, there are restrictions. And these restrictions, while of course, many players today do a lot better than they did back then, but in the aggregate, they still, from our perspective, clearly work to the disadvantage of players and play into the hands of a, effectively a trading market between clubs that is controlled by clubs more mm. than by players. So the, in many ways, people often talk about this as being the, the beginning of player power. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just gonna be devil's advocate here for a bit, Jonas. Sure. So. One of the predictions that was made at the time, or one of the things that was said at the time as to why this could be so dangerous for the football industry, was that you were going to basically kill clubs. You know, what was the point of developing talent if they weren't then compensated for it? Well, here we are 25 years on and, and, and football's not dead. Okay, there are issues. There was always issues. But, but, but you know, it, it seems to be a pretty healthy industry. So perhaps... Bosman wasn't as significant as we thought, or it didn't it didn't kill the game. I mean, what 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 lessons can we draw now, twenty five years on? Do do we do we need transfers? Why why do we have a transfer system? Yeah, I mean, what happened a few years after Bosman? So Bosman is nineteen ninety five, fifteenth um, of December. So literally yesterday, twenty five years ago. What happened about five six years later is that the European Commission at the time basically investigated the entire rule system of the of the transfer market or the, the transfer regulations, forced some substantial changes to that. But in that, of course, we established new mechanisms of restrictions, which, according to the famous words of then Commissioner Monti, were meant to find the balance between the interests of the sport and the rights of free movement of the players. I'm involved in many of these conversations at FIFA level with clubs, leagues, etc., about reforming the system. But even by now, even FIFA has accepted in a, in a paper that the system actually doesn't obtain sufficiently its stated objectives. And that raises questions about whether you could still justify the restrictions that it creates. You know, we had the very same comments by owners in baseball in the United States when Kurt Flood, a player back in the 60s, 70s, ran the exact same case effectively as Bosman did. Everybody said, that's the end of it. At that point, it doesn't make sense to own a club any longer. Well, you know, now we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars annual turnovers. What I think is always the misconception in football or in sport in general is that we try to regulate 
this market by restricting the labor market for the players. But if you're concerned about reimbursing other clubs in your same pyramid structure for training, you don't have to do that via transfer system, right? You can just apply a tax, for example, on any of your revenues and say, you know what? We think the clubs lower down do such a good job in developing these players. We're going to share some of that. And that was an interesting point that actually at the time when the Bosman ruling was passed, what it was called the advocate general, so sort of like the state attorney, if you will, of the European court, he already back then said that the goals that the clubs, the federations, the leagues at the time said this transfer system needed to attain could be much better achieved, better achieved through other redistributive mechanisms. And that's still, I think, the same conversation today. Um, the transfer mm. system is maintained, um, but effectively, in our view, it stabilizes the current power structure um, because only very few clubs will be able to bid at the kind of transfer fees um, that, um, that you require to get to certain players. And the redistributive effect, yes, it does redistribute, but to a degree that could never outperform the competitive advantage that the clubs get um, from being so dominant. Um, yeah. And those are questions that need answering and that need to be reformed because it is the the biggest economic trigger in our game. Another big question that I know is is uh, exercising minds around Europe and would be very high on your agenda, I'd imagine, is, is, is salary caps. And it's interesting that you talked about competitive balance. You brought in the US example. So that is, of course, another you know, regulatory measure that I would imagine the players' union is uneasy about, you know, <laughs> limiting, externally limiting the amount that one of your members can earn. I mean, that's, I'm not sure I'd put up with that as a journalist. So, so salary caps, talk me through that. What sh should football, is it special? Does it need that kind of regulatory measure to sort of protect it against itself? Clubs are arguing that for reasons to protect each other from each other, right? Nobody's forcing a certain expenditure. Um, it's a market that creates those forces and the clubs buy into that. Now, salary caps, it's quite complex. I, to be honest, I often feel that, especially in times like this, um, it's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction um, to go that way and say, okay, that's where we spend most money. If we cut that down, um, we'll do better. Um, but it is a very, very complex measure. The first thing, as you rightly say, it is probably the most severe restraint of the freedom of, an, of a worker to basically say you can never earn more than this. So in all the systems around the world where this does exist, and that's of course mainly the US sports system, they are based on very strong, very detailed collective bargaining agreements with the unions, through which those players over there have substantially more power in other areas than footballers have. The other thing is that none of the sports that operates them at a real substantial level, of course, there are some examples in, in lower leagues and lower competitions, but at a substantial level, there is no system in which you have a transfer system and a salary cap system at the same time. Yeah. And there is a good reason for that, because philosophically speaking, if you leave all the little intricacies out of the side, the philosophy of the transfer system is that talent goes up the pyramid, and you pay money downwards, right, to, to recover the cost or the loss of, of losing the talent. Whereas, actually, salary caps are meant to do the opposite thing. They're meant to stop talent going upwards to the richest club in order to create more stability and more ability for all teams to compete. But they're paired with mechanisms that are very, very different from what we have in football. For example, 
they come with much more significant financial redistribution amongst clubs. Because the essence of whether you're able to compete is not, in my opinion, what you limit somebody else to spend. It's about what resources actually every club has. And in football, those resources are so greatly different that if you now implement a salary cap, the big clubs will still be dominant. But also, not only do you have redistribution, you have incredible financial disclosures. So if you want to argue mm. essentially about how much players should be earning from the big pie, well, you need to tell the players what the big pie is. To change the subject slightly onto, onto a, a classic, I would say, trade union issue, which is you know safety. So, so concussion mm -hmm. subs, mm -hmm. where are we at with that? I mean, we keep hearing about pilot projects. We seem to be inching towards that. What, what, what's the latest? Well, the latest is exactly what you just mentioned, uh, pilots for, for subs. Um, let's not, let's not um, mess around with the reality. Football is vastly behind um, the time um, on this. Um, we've been incredibly slow to respond. But, you know, these are life-altering injuries, potentially, and football has been way too slow. We're now in this process of trialing um, subs, um, but the trials, as we understand it, will be about permanent subs, which is, of course, let's trial them, all good. I think we're moving way too slow. We should have implemented substantially more severe measures much sooner. We've been lobbying for this now, I think, um, close to eight, nine years to get these changes in. Um, but the problem is actually diagnosis, right? Because right now you could substitute a player where you assume he has a concussion or she has a concussion. Nobody's holding anybody back. The problem is we're terrible at diagnosing them. And some of that is medical um, and research will make us better at that. But the problem is that we're still trying to assess a player for a concussion in a three-minute interval on the pitch with 20,000, 30,000 people screaming at you with bright lights, etc. And all the other sports, rugby, American football, etc. have understood that we need to take the players off the pitch. We need to take them into a safe environment, run a proper test, which might take you 10 minutes, and be on the side of caution. And football is still hesitating to do that. And it is doing so because effectively, I think it is worried about the concept of temporary substitutions, which would make this very easy. Take the player out, bring somebody else in. If after 10 minutes, the players is cleared, send them back on. But we're, we're having way too many debates about what it could do to the game, what it could do to, I don't know, potentially players cheating a concussion. Yeah, throwing um, a free it's, kick specialist it's, on. It's, it's, all, it's all mm. compared to the potential health implications. It's just the wrong perspective. Go with exactly. safety first, put the measures in place that protect the players, and then you can learn from them and ease them and adapt them to make them fit for purpose in years to come. But we're having the conversation from the wrong end. And, um, you know, we saw the comments from Bertongen um, yesterday um, who talked about mm -hmm. months later still having implications and headaches and problems with his life after this concussion. That's what we're dealing with. It's, um, it's very severe and football has been way too slow. It's very simple. Sounds like common sense to me. Sounds like uh, in the same way that Bosman was common sense. Let's hopefully we can all be sensible. Yeah, that which would is be a, a good you know, start. A Christmas message there. Jonas, thanks very much for your time no, and all you the guys. best. Thank you. Right, we got through plenty there. Thank you very much to Matt. Thanks to all of our guests and thank you to you for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Mm -hmm.